Welcome to these edited audio recordings from Project Echo, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. Meetings happen most Thursday mornings, 7.30 to 8.30 via Zoom, and you can register through the Westvic PHN site. This edited piece will bring the didactic presentations from our experts in content and context, and I'll edit out the Q&A and discussions. But you can join us uh, every Thursday uh, via Zoom if you want to take part. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Project Echo. This is the Westwick Perchin Hub COVID-19 Echo Network Series 8, Session 1. It's Thursday, the 27th of January, 2022. Welcome back to the Echo Network. This session is titled Responding to Omicron, Primary Care, Public Health and Health Service Perspectives Over Summer. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. Welcome back to our first session for 2022. In 2020, the word unprecedented was used more than a few times to describe the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And in 2021, this word was eclipsed by the phrase vaccine rollout. Delta kept us pretty busy, but with biological prevention on our side, with both vaccines and citrovimab infusions, we were able to temper the impact of this variant, both on individuals and ICU beds. As we reach vaccine milestones and public health measures eased, Late last year, we anticipated a rise in cases, and in response, we ran an entire series dedicated to COVID care pathways and managing COVID in the community. You can check out the resources from last series and materials in the box by following the links in the chat. Um, And uh, if Gemma, if you want to throw up the slide to catch up on missed content, which will still be relevant today. So late last year, with 95% vaccination rates across our region and citruvimab infusion pathways in place, things seem to be fairly under control across all quarters of the healthcare system. Into Omicron, a variant which has changed the game again, and expect the unexpected became the new tagline for the coronavirus pandemic. In primary care, we were forced to pivot yet again, delivering boosters alongside childhood vaccinations, managing COVID cases alongside business as usual. And on top of this, many of us would have experienced disruptions due to staff infections and quarantine, all at a time when we'd hoped for a much needed slowdown period. This series will have a focus on COVID care pathways, both clinical care aspects and the implementation of those pathways. You'll be bringing us tricky cases to discuss with peers and specialist colleagues, and we'll consider how COVID is similar and different to other viruses we've encountered and how we manage it in practice. We'll be seeking to learn how to adapt and innovate alongside peers as we progress through this stage of the pandemic. How do we put those care pathways into practice in primary care in our local contexts? What new models of care have emerged over the past few weeks, and how can we better normalize this into our routine practice and better integrate with how health services what new knowledge skills and resources do we need and we've put up a poll please take the time to let us know what you want to hear through this series so what new knowledge skills and resources do we need to support this adaptation to our work in primary care what needs to be done at the organizational level to support this work and what needs to be advocated for at the level of government uh, both commonwealth and state levels This morning, we'll hear the perspectives of a GP, a public health physician, and an ID consultant. We'll be reviewing the life of a stressed healthcare system over the past few weeks and considering uh, how to prioritise care at this time. And we'll be hopefully covering some of the pressing issues and problems that are arising. As always, we appreciate all your questions and feedback that you bring live and in the chat. So thank you for lighting up your cameras um, and getting your fingers working on the keyboard. Let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP. I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside the ECHO team, Gemma Fee. And thanks to Zach Hollow for taking notes this morning. So this morning, uh, you will know um, Dr. Anna Glue-Ballarat Medical Centre. I'm going to throw to her at the moment uh, shortly and ask her about 
key challenges facing primary care, the, the kind of weeks in the life of a GP over the last few weeks to kind of bring us all back together and on the same page. We're delighted to be joined by Prof Rosemary Aldridge, uh, the Director of the Grampians Public Health Unit, the Medical Director of the Grampians Public Health Unit to give us an update, but also that public health perspective. Thanks for the case vignette. Um, we'll use that to lead into a discussion on citrovimab infusions, which Dr. Carolyn Bartolo, infectious diseases physician from Bowen Southwest Public Health Unit, Bowen Health and Ballarat Health Services, um, triple roles, um, will be um, providing. And Caroline, if you don't mind giving us a quick review of how health services are going and what that code brown's looking, that'd be great. We'd just love to hear your insights, but just briefly, we'll move on to the citrovimab eligibility. And um, uh, Jeff Urquhart will bring us a GPLU Bowen Health update. I didn't pop it in there, but Alison Miller will bring us a, a quick update from Ballarat and important numbers to know. And we'll finish with Linda Govan, Regional Senior Manager, giving us a PHN update. You'll notice that Kate Graham's not on the program. She'll be back next week. She's been working through January, but has taken a week off. So um, we've not called upon her, but she'll be back next week. Anna Glue, tell us, good morning. What's it been like in the last couple of weeks in primary care? Good morning, Bianca. Good morning, everyone. My name's Anna, um, and I'm calling in from Wadawurrung country. Last few weeks, well, where do we start, I guess? So had to manage isolation, booster immunisations, COVID-positive cases, residential care lockdowns, changes in testing, close contact definition, plus travel testing changes, and that was just my family. <laughs> So, so the positives, there have been a couple of positives for me over the last couple of weeks, oh, months, I guess. I did have a week off between Christmas and New Year, much needed. I did get to spend Christmas with my extended family, even though it was delayed slightly due to uh, various people quarantining. I did get to see all my children, two of whom live interstate, so that was a bonus. And we got to celebrate the 21st birthday, 22nd birthday and graduation of the youngest child, all of which had been delayed due to COVID. Mm. So there were some wins. But since coming back to work after New Year, so um, it was some trepidation, I guess, I headed back to work. There were a lot of changes that happened over Christmas, New Year time. And it's about a... For me, it's turning up to work every day, not knowing a lot of stuff. I mean, I know in general practice, we deal with uncertainty all the time, but I'm now dealing with which staff am I going to have today? Who's going to be in isolation? Who's going to have COVID? I figure that about a third of um, our team have so far either had COVID or been close contacts and had to isolate. So fortunately, not all at the same time, but I don't know each day who's actually going to be around to work. There have been lots of changes in the requirements over this time, the testing requirements, the booster doses, the rolling out of vaccines for kids and not knowing when those vaccines will arrive, so being reluctant to book the vaccine appointments until you actually have the vaccines in your um, practice is quite um, stressful, not to mention people calling up. We've started doing some COVID care in general practice. We've had changes in definitions of close contact, changes in requirements for people to isolate and trying to get that information across to all of our patients. And we have a lot of anxious patients. So it's been um, yet another challenging time. And I was saying to Bianca earlier in the week, I can't actually, I mean, I've been practicing now in general practice for probably nearly 30 years, and I can't remember a more stressful time in my practice life ever. And at the same time, we are also trying to make sure that our staff and us have some holidays and some time off to try and rejuvenate. So what's kept me going 
and keeps me going at this stage. And I think the most important thing I'd have to say is my fantastic team at Ballarat Medical Centre. I could not do it without the whole team. We have a great team, very supportive. And I'm going to sound a bit like Ash Barty here. It's not just me. This is the whole team. There is no way we can do it without our fantastic supportive staff, both in the clinic, but also when someone is off isolating because they have COVID or because they're a close contact. The amount of group chats we have within the practice to support everyone is um, so important. And um, I guess one of the most important ways we've been able to get through. Um, what do I need from here? I need um, better information, not just to me, but I need we need better information out in the public. Um, better information about who isolates and when. It's very confusing. It's very confusing about return to work um, and who gets to go back to work and when. Um, once people have had COVID, do they have to test, go back to work? I've been asked to write a letter for someone to say he could go back to work even though he's more than seven days post-diagnosis, um, is symptomatically well. But work was continuing to get him to do rat tests, which were still positive, but I don't know why they were still doing rat tests. This was not a healthcare setting. So um, there's confusion about that. Um, so we need better public health messaging. I think not just public health units, but government messaging, better messaging that if you've got a negative rat test, but symptoms, you still stay home. Um, we've got people turning up to medical appointments who've got a negative rat test, but still have symptoms, turning up to have um, medical procedures when they've been had positive tests uh, you know so we need further information out there for the community we need it would be really nice if the government would stop making announcements at sort of at 10 o'clock in the morning that we're expected to know about and implement by 10.05 when we're consulting and we just have no change the messaging around the booster doses well you know it was six months then it was four months then it was three months it's been thoroughly confusing. I don't know what we're doing with boosters for 12 to 17-year-olds. There's been no messaging about that. Um, so co consistency of information, what else do we need? So it's been nice, I would say, too, I guess over recent weeks, there has been some recognition in the media that GPs are actually under a lot of pressure at the moment and practices are under a lot of pressure, and that has been... Um, nice to recognise when the messaging was initially, oh, well, hospitals are busy, hospitals are full, just call your GP. That was not actually particularly helpful, I don't think. Um, and I have had some lovely feedback and um, responses from patients now who are saying, how are you guys going? Did you get a holiday? Which has been really nice to actually at least feel valued within my community. Fantastic. Thank you. And, uh, and, no and I'd like to also echo that, that, you know, support from colleagues is, the, is, is an incredibly resilience um, mm. promoting thing. So I'm so pleased that you have a good team there. And I hope everyone here has um, shares similar support from their team. Um, Rosemary, over to you for the public health perspective. Thanks very much. Uh, and thanks, everyone. Thanks, Bianca. And uh, I'm calling from Wadarong country today. Um, Anna, can I just say that I was flabbergasted when those messages of just go to your GP, call your GP became quite the popular tagline for people who were providing, you know, were doorstopped by media and had nothing else to say as if GPs had nothing else to do other than to be at the beck and call of the, um, the people who were saying those things. So I was, I was, I was offended and distressed and I felt 
um, offended on behalf of my colleague GPs for whom I thought that was massively disrespectful. Um, enough said um, that I, I felt the pain of all of my colleagues on that one. Um, so I'm going to do three things today and forgive me, I haven't had a chance to actually prepare a written presentation, uh, uh, um, slides on this, so I'll just go through. So I'm going to talk about the status of COVID in our region, Grampians region today, um, the risks and responses and what we're doing from a public health unit perspective, and then also how we're supporting primary care teams across our region in this work. Um, first of all, from a status update across our region in the Grampians, we've got uh, just under 2,400 active cases. We're recording about 450 to 500 cases a day. That includes PCRs and self-reported rapid antigen test results. We've already had 40 recorded as of seven o'clock this morning. About a half to a two thirds of those are in Ballarat LGA. So about 250 to 350 daily. Um, we're seeing outbreaks and clusters around aged care disability providers, especially those large disability providers who have numerous homes in which they house and care for um, people with disabilities. Um, early childhood education and care centres are now um, starting to really emerge as um, a very rapid source of increasing spread. We're also seeing it amongst large employers, so manufacturers, abattoirs, and others where workers, especially where workers live together, such as in farm workers, for example. Um, but what we are seeing, though, is that in a lot of those settings, it's more that social contact rather than workplace contact is actually the source of the infection. And that's because we're seeing a lot of movement amongst younger people and a lot of infection amongst younger people. Um, and just as an aside, which I'll ask my clinical colleagues, my GP and um, infectious diseases colleagues to mention is that uh, what I've seen and what we're hearing is that people under about the age of 30 seem to be seem to be hit quite hard actually by COVID. And I'm not sure if this is just artifactual or it's, it, or it's something that's being observed. And I've wondered to others of my infectious diseases colleagues, whether that's because like we saw with swine flu, where we had, we knew from serological studies that people under the age of 50 were harder hit because they had not been exposed to a similarly looking influenza virus at that time, that was in 2009. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, as we know, coronavirus have been circulating for a long time. I'm wondering if potentially people over the age of 30 have had some exposure to something which looks a bit like what we've got now. And so that might account for some sort of um, less clinical apparent, a clinically apparent condition. Of course, the other thing is who's getting the boosters. And we do know that the third dose makes a big difference to a person's experience with COVID. With respect to testing, we we're seeing up to about 800 per day at our Creswick Road testing site in Ballarat. Lots of testing happening throughout the region. But in the Creswick Road site, we'll be transitioning to essentially becoming more of a rapid antigen test distribution centre and doing fewer PCRs, PCRs that will be done by others in our community by the other sites. Um, but that's also because we can't afford to have our staff there and then also be trying to staff up the vaccination um, load in the public sector. So we'll be moving out. We have already moved some of our staff from testing to vaccination efforts. And with respect to vaccination efforts, there has been an extraordinary effort across the region, um, both in the, by public uh, services, but also, of course, by primary care teams. Um, we know that children 5 to 11 are coming and uh, are, you know, being brought by their parents to have their vaccines. We know that the boosters um, have had, had had quite a lot of take up, but there's still lots of appointments uh, locally, at least as I know, for people seeking their boosters. And of course, the vaccine mandates from on the 12th of February for the essential workers and others um, mean that those are becoming increasingly in demand. 
So the second thing I'd like to talk about is the risk and response. And as you'd appreciate, there was a time when we had so few cases, we could interview each case. Clearly that's not possible now. So our aim is to try and solicit information about risk from the cases we are, that are being notified to us so that we can uh, you know, move on some um, contacts to, you know, the, the contacts of places where they've been to then um, identify risk settings and support and test and try and contain what might be happening there. So we've initiated this year some um, novel ways of soliciting intelligence around this. And uh, one is that um, our public health unit uh, sends a text to all PCR notified and rapid antigen test notified positive cases in our region. So everybody who is notified, we if they have a mobile phone, we send them a text asking them to um, go onto a website, to write an email to us saying whether or not they've been to an aged care setting, a disability setting, an early childcare, educational care setting, a high risk accommodation setting, such as a boarding house or a rooming house, or indeed corrections. And what we find is that's, a, and we've done some work and found that was a very sensitive measure, just one question, a very sensitive way of trying to identify and uh, identify those uh, risks of settings where people may be more vulnerable to the effects of uh, COVID and even Omicron making things worse if they've got underlying conditions. So that allows us to then prioritise who we do interview. So we interview our highest priority is anybody who identifies as a First Nations person. Secondly, is people who are over the age of 60 and don't have a mobile phone, um, particularly outside the Ballarat LGA. And then thirdly, it would be people who've notified to us that they've been to one of those high-risk settings. So we have a chat to them and then find out what that might mean for that high-risk setting. Sometimes we'll already know about it, but other times we don't because we do find we do get direct notifications from such facilities. The, the, the uh, second thing we've done is establish what we call our Grandkids Region Risk Alert Huddle, where at 9am every morning we have representatives from um, every local council, every health service, primary health network, at shows, community health, um, uh, government departments, BitPol, um, various other stakeholders who come together and tell us, being the eyes and ears of our region, um, what they've heard. And uh, for example, last week, someone said, oh, well, there's those two cases in early childhood there. And we, we didn't know about them. So we were able to follow those up early. Um, what that also then means is that we can then plan our response where it's needed to obviously implement those public health principles of case, care, contain, contact and comms as we need. What we're finding in aged care is that most of the aged care facilities are all over this now, private and public. They've been doing an amazing job, actually, and the work of uh, being supported by their primary care teams, the GPs on this meeting, as well as the work that they've done to organise their own COVID safe plans and, you know, provide superb care to their residents. They are doing a great job. Consequently, we're seeing very few hospitalisations and very few deaths in from aged care residents. Um, the, the disability sector hasn't had the same level of attention. Uh, we have, from the very start, tried to engage and have successfully engaged. And as you all know, we did do a, a strong vaccination program across the disability sector early. Uh, but we are finding that the disability sector, almost by definition, because they're often providing residential care in a whole different, num uh, different numbers of sites, it's much harder to contain. They have staff going between them. They have other people coming in to provide care for their residents. It's, a, I think, a much more complex environment. But we are trying to support them and we have, um, you know, we have regular meetings with um, particular uh, people as we need. Um, and then the third thing I'd like to talk about is that we are endeavouring more to this year support primary care teams across the region, especially Ballarat Health Services at Home is doing a great job and has employed GPs to um, share that care in Ballarat 
in the rest of the regions, it's been provided by hospital in the homes and of course GPs on this meeting. But there are some people with COVID who don't have their own GP. So the Grampians Public Health Unit is employing two GPs to be that clinical care lead or that clinical care support person for people in the region who don't have their own GP to work with those hospital in the home programs with every health service, but also to provide GPs in our um, region with pragmatic advice. Should they be wanting a phone number to call to just talk something over with a colleague GP, they can be using that number. And the third thing is then to facilitate escalations should our GPs in primary care be concerned or the his team be concerned. So that'll be a service Monday to Friday and our first FRA CGP commences on Monday the 7th of February and uh, we're very much looking forward to establishing it. That's a new arrangement and it, it's a recognition that um, in the Grampians region, especially outside Ballarat, which is already, which is now well, very well served by Ballarat Health Services at Home, as Alison Miller will tell you later, um, that that's been a gap in the support network for primary care teams. So um, Public Health Unit, which has that region-wide brief will be um, appointing those two general practitioners in order to be able to solely be focused on supporting primary care teams in the region and uh, including the hospital in the home programs. So I might leave it there, Bianca. I know that's a very rapid run through, but I'll leave it there in the interest of time. There's a case vignette that I want to share with you. And um, thanks, Lee Meakin, for, uh, well, you didn't really share it with me. I kind of managed to get it from Anna Glue, but that's how things work when you're throwing together a quick echo. In the future, I'm going to see lots of uh, vignettes coming from you guys. I just know it. 92-year-old um, uh, COVID-positive woman in a residential aged care facility was a COVID contact, developed mild symptoms about a day prior to, to the GP being in touch with her um, and was rat positive. She was elderly, but otherwise well. Second Daisy was in the community uh, in June was the second dose, but then she subsequently moved into rat, the rack. So she missed the Pfizer because she it wasn't technically eligible when they provided that third dose. Um, she's capable of consent um, and her goals of care were for hospital care, but not for ICU. So Lee, the uh, unsuspecting GP, pops in quickly to check some results on 4.30 on a Friday Arvo and is asked by the clinical staff, could you arrange a citrovimab infusion, please? So Caroline, over to you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this um, citrovimab infu um, infusion eligibility. And if we have a little bit of time, we can nut out some of the practicalities of the case. Thanks, Gemma. Yeah, thanks. So essentially, um, recently we know that uh, the Department of Health have changed the eligibility of sotrovimab to have had two doses of a vaccine to be considered partially vaccinated for sotrovimab infusion eligibility reasons. Um, however, that means that all of a sudden, a large amount of the population is suddenly eligible for sotrovimab. And sotrovimab, although it feels like there's a lot of sotrovimab shortage, and though we actually have to be quite careful about um, you know, who we give it to. And apart from that, the logistics of administering sotrovimab have been hard enough to date. And so having to administer it to a larger number of people is actually not, not, not actually possible because it does involve an intravenous infusion, observation, et cetera. So for example, at Bowen Health, we have had a clinic set up, but um, the maximum number of infusions we can administer a day is about three. And we have been reaching that maximum in the last month, definitely. Uh, and apart from that, if there are more patients, we actually admit them to a COVID ward to give them the infusion. So we've, we've often been giving, you know, five to seven infusions every now and then as well today. Now, it, what, one of the criteria is that people should have um, 
an expected survival of at least a year. And I suppose that's because, you know, at the end of the day, what you're trying to prevent is hospitalization and death. So are you really going to make a difference here? So that's one thing I would be considering in this patient. Um, and I suppose also, as I mentioned, the logistics. So uh, I haven't had a case, I have to say, in an aged care where we have transferred someone from an aged care facility out to the hospital. You'd think it would make more sense to actually administer it uh, within the aged care facility. But to date, we don't have a sort of in-reach or hospital in the home set up. So that I think that would all have to be set up formally before we would do that sort of thing so at the moment if you did have someone in aged care facility i think they would have to be transferred um, to the hospital to have that uh, happen um, and i suppose we're running into these ethical issues now of who gets it then you know we have this limited number of people we can give it to uh, you know and someone like this patient so Yes, they are definitely higher risk because of their age, and it's been more than six months since their second go. So in this case, um, you know, they would be prioritized in that respect. It comes to people who are uh, who have had two doses. But, you know, we also have lots of immunosuppressed patients, transplant patients, um, stem cell transplants, solid organ transplants, etc., who would take priority. So we often have to triage, you know, who gets who gets what as well. So I think this would be a tricky one. Um, you know, again, probably need to know more about this 92 year old and what their expected survival is. Um, and, uh, and, and at the moment they'd probably need to be transferred to hospital. So how easy is that for, for this particular person, for example? Hmm. Um, thanks, Caroline. It's making me think what's the intervention here when I spoke to Rosemary and I said, how does the health system kind of prioritise in the context of, you know, being in crisis, I guess, really being just having so much to do? How do we prioritise at this time of, of high demand, you know, low supply and resource constraints? Mm -hmm. And she just said boosters, 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 vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. So we're back in that place again. It makes me wonder if all our RAC GPs should be auditing all your patients and saying, is there a need? Can we go in and give that third boost? Booster or how do we get that third dose into all our RAC clients? Do the RACs need to be auditing? Mm. Janelle, I don't know if that's a role we might play as West Victor. Are we and Linda? Um, how are we going with those third doses? Because as you say, Caroline, it's a difficult in terms of balancing um, at this time. Yeah, and also until we have the new medications, you know, which are coming out, which are tablets, so that would be really useful, um, you know, to to have those available because. That, that should be easier, at least. I mean, some of them do have interactions, which means that not everyone would be um, able to have them. Uh, but certainly that would be another option, which is easier to give uh, rather than having to bring someone in for an infusion. So, I mean, I think things will change once yes. those are available. That's but at Pax, the moment, Pax we have Lovett. limited options. Yeah, yeah. Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. Mul and also um, Remdesivir is another option, which, you know, currently technically you could give uh, to someone for three days, in fact, to sort of prevent hospitalization. But um, we don't have the clinical task force guidelines recommending that just yet. But again, it's three days of an intravenous infusion. So logistically, it's just really hard. Thank you. Bye. Jeff, over to you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks, uh, Bianca. So uh, my name is Jeff Erica, GP liaison, and probably spending about 70% of my week at the moment supporting the clinical team out at remote patient monitoring. So today I'm just going to give you a brief update, a bit of the numbers, 
a few tips around mild COVID GP management and then also how to refer into remote patient monitoring um, for escalation of care or also for the Strachovimab um, infusion. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's do the data. Let's do the referral pathway because we've only got three minutes for yourself and Alison, so we won't have time for mild COVID, but I'll recommend people go back to our uh, last series and perhaps if there's a demand for mild COVID, I'll like to hear from our um, crew. Um, we might bring a special didactic on it perhaps next week. So save your slides there and we can potentially do a didactic on it next week. Thanks. Okay, so um, so just previous slide, um, just the, the numbers in the hospital, we've got about 40 in the ward, four in ICU. Uh, we've had around 7,000 new cases this week. And last uh, few days ago, we had 900-odd, um, 50% uh, PCR, 50% RAT. Um, but this is well down from what we had to about two weeks ago. We were getting 2,500 um, per day in the Geelong region, so certainly um, better numbers. And we've got about 511 on risk um, on remote patient monitoring at the moment. Um, so predominantly low, uh, but we've also got a few medium stable and unstable, some around 70 odd each. So next slide, thank you. Um, so just how can GPs um, get involved? So at the moment, um, Department of Health have established a detailed risk stratification criteria, which is based on a uh, text or an online survey. And then patients are either streamed into self-care or an in-care pathway. So self-care, mild symptoms, low risk of deterioration, you know, no comorbidities, self-manage. And then we're looking after the in-care pathways where obviously they've got moderate symptoms, moderate risk of deterioration, medium or high comorbidities and or might be requiring social support. So uh, COVID information referral hotline has been set up for GPs who need clinical support um, and also to refer patients for escalation of care or for citrovimab. So there's two options. You can refer in for monitoring or you can refer in for citrovimab. And um, these referrals are basically um, handled uh, with a, um, a call to our um, GP COVID hotline and then a referral via that email address there on the risk stratification tool. So all this was emailed to GP practice around two weeks ago. Um, so if you haven't got that document uh, for referral, um, then you can contact GP liaison and we'll um, send it to your practice. Uh, about a week ago, we also set up a patient COVID hotline, and this is for assistance and support in navigating testing or isolation requirements. So I've got those three numbers listed below there. Uh, next slide, thanks. So um, in terms of um, what's going on with our remote patient monitoring, we've got a medical lead on every day um, on that number there. Uh, it's mostly an ID registrar Monday to Friday, but there are a couple of afternoons and certainly on weekends we have um, a team of GPs who are rostered for that medical lead. So what we can offer is that anyone who may not have been contacted um, by the remote patient monitoring team but certainly require remote patient monitoring based on the criteria in the GP MEMO document, or if there's patients who are allocated to self-care or low care who might be having escalating symptoms um, who would benefit from remote patient monitoring. So um, the, also the other option is for citrovimab. Um, we can um, have those patients sent into us. So essentially they need to be less than day five, unvaccinated or one vaccination with you know, one of the following criteria. We've already gone through most of this. Uh, age greater than 50 or a risk factor such as high BMI, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, chronic lung disease or some cardiovascular disease. 
um, or if they're vaccinated and immunosuppressed, then those, they can be referred in as well. And obviously the, the, that other case was if they're under-vaccinated um, with, um, with two vaccinations but greater than four months since their second with age greater than 60 or two risk factors. So we like to get them as soon as possible because there's a strict release of medication from the Alfred Hospital and it can take a bit of time to sort out. So if you want to refer these, phone the GP hotline for um, patient monitoring and then send the referral through. Over to the Ballarat GPLUT. Thanks, Alison. Morning, everyone. So I'm Alison Miller. I'm a GP at Ballarat Medical Centre, but I'm also working with the um, BHS at Home COVID monitoring team, which is the medium care pathway, same as Jeff. Um, in terms of our processes at the moment, we are, uh, if you have any queries, and we sent a letter out to all our GPs in the region last week with um, uh, the contact phone number for our uh, care our COVID navigator, which is a mobile number held by our nurse in charge. That's probably the best way to contact us initially. We will work on providing a GP hotline and other additional resources. That's certainly the best way to contact us initially. There, um, in terms of organising Citrovimab, there have been many avenues to which people have got that. We'll aim to streamline it, uh, but calling on this number initially, but otherwise we can, um, and we'll organise to put it in the chat, for the BHS at home intake at uh, bhs.org.au would be another way to send some information through with a request for uh, discussion of Citrovimab. We are in the lucky position that we are starting a, a tent today for our infusion service uh, and that will be underway where we are, currently we've been running at about four Citrovimabs a day. Again the risk stratification and a selection of patients is often difficult but certainly focusing on people who are immunosuppressed uh, and uh, regardless of vaccination status and then as Jeff said in terms of the uh, their hierarchy of, um, of risk factors. So we've got a number of things going on and hope to provide some more information and more contact uh, details. Certainly Janina said if you've got any difficulties bringing the GPLU team that will always go through to Janine and she can actually help facilitate if you're having trouble contacting our team at all. Thanks, Alison. Okay, over to you, Linda. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, start, I'll get that slide up, Gemma. Um, starting with the update, there you go, to the worker vaccination requirements, as um, Anna Blue was mentioning earlier, a couple of key points to keep in mind. I appreciate there's a lot of information on that slide. Um, this is from the latest Victorian Public Health Update, which we received on the 25th of January. We did send one out on the 24th and they updated it, so we'll get a new one out to you today. Um, but some key points to consider, workers in mandated workforces, including healthcare, aged care and disability, are now required to be fully vaccinated with a third dose. This means workers eligible for a third dose on or before the 12th of January have until the 12th of February to receive their third dose. Education staff have until the 25th of February to receive a third dose. Workplaces must cite and record proof of vaccination and mandatory third doses are not required for the under 18 age groups at the moment. Um, the other side of the slide um, is further detail around um, mandate, uh, when a person can receive a COVID vaccine after contracting uh, COVID-19. I won't go into that, that information. However, um, we will, if the, the link is there for the ATAGI guidelines down the bottom. So again, that just builds on the discussion we just had earlier this morning. Um, next slide, thanks, Gemma. Um, so the Victorian Department of Health have also released an updated version of their contact assessment and management guidance, which includes the worker exposure risk matrix. 
This was updated on the 19th of January. So the matrix includes increased guidance on workplace contacts and exposure assessment and updated information in the event of a workplace contact, including furlough advice, testing, the use of rats, um, PPA requirements and working across sites as well. Um, and just as a reminder, and it's on the next slide, thanks Gemma, that um, there is the communicable disease control hotline, which has the priority line for GPs as well, if um, you need some further support around um, exposure or contact management in your, play, in your workplace. Uh, next slide, thanks. So down to some core PHN business. Um, in regards to aged care, uh, Aspen have resumed visits and they're also doing second visits to the private recs to make sure that the boosters are all, are all covered. Um, and we also know that residential aged care providers and in-home and aged community aged care providers have to report via the, the My Aged Care website or portal from the 25th of January of the, their um, staff staff's booster doses. So that's a new, that's new. Um, in regards to the work that's been happening in our vulnerable populations and that funding's been extended till the end of June, which is great. So far, there's been 358 uh, uh, vaccinations completed in the home. Um, and these are for people with a disability, frail, um, unable to leave home or aged care. So that's, that's doing quite well. And we've also had for the maximizing COVID vaccinations, 3,626 vaccinations completed, which is great. We also had a second round of um, EOIs put out late last year. We've had 15 applicants. I think we've had all 15 successful applicants. So we're just working through um, some finer details, but they'll be notified shortly. So again, that's um, a range of pop-up clinics, extended hours, um, a, number of, a number of activities. So that's good as well. In regards to COVID positive pathways, this is really where the, the focus of effort at the PHN is, is now. And we're very happy to welcome Naomi White to our team um, as our COVID positive pathway manager. Some of you will know Naomi as um, a former uh, lead for the vaccination rollout for the Grampians Public Health Unit. So um, Naomi is very familiar with the space and I can't see Naomi waving there, but she might pop Hello, her hand up. Oh, there she is, fantastic, thanks. Um, and the key part for this role is really mapping the pathways with the local public health units and the health services and also looking at the expanded role of the GPRC. So there's a lot of work in there. Naomi is very keen and very happy for you to reach out to her. And Annie Henry, who's also been working on our team around the vulnerable population work, will also be supporting Naomi with this work. So really, um, yeah, lots of effort there. Um, just in regards to PPE, we've had a lot of orders. There's been a national uh, supply uh, difficulty from the national medical stockpile, but that's hopefully is resolving. So we've had orders going out, but not in complete, complete orders that, that um, were put in. So that we're just working through that. At the moment, we don't have supplies of rats. We're not hearing that we'll be um, receiving uh, rat supplies through the national medical stockpile. Um, but we'll update you as we go forward. And um, there are some supplies of oximeters. Um, just in regards to uh, supply chains, we know in the first, everybody knows in the first couple of weeks of January, there's a huge demand for the pediatric Pfizer, um, particularly in, in the first instance, always reach out to us. We will try and find sites that have excess or the local public health units sometimes have supply available. So we try and mix and match that. Otherwise, we put in requests to the Commonwealth and the ta task force, as I've um, noted there, review all of the requests and um, have a, a, I guess, a population health, a population approach to, to giving or disseminating the vaccine. So it is a pretty tight space at the moment. 
Um, a note from Barwon Public Health Unit, they are phasing out AstraZeneca if you happen to need stock. They've got stock available until the 25th of the 2nd. And in regards to the availability of paediatric uh, uh, appointments at both hubs, it, it is variable. We know this week Barwon have appointments available. Um, the last I heard earlier in this week from Ballarat, they were full, but they had appointments available over the next few weeks. So again, it's a bit of an ebb and flow in regards to how much stock is available. Next slide. And just, I guess, key points. We've had the Novavax expression of interest that has closed. It actually closes formally now at 9.30. If you have an urgent need to, or you'd like to have Novavax and you haven't put an EOI in, just pop it in the chat now and I can add you to, this, to the spreadsheet for the Commonwealth. Um, and the rest of that information went out in the, the bulletin earlier this week. So it's pretty exciting finally to have Novavax on board. Next slide, thanks. Um, and again, just a list of some useful resources. So the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre has some really um, helpful resources around vaccination. So I'd encourage you to move, have a look there. Um, next slide, thanks. And I think what's come out, Linda, is just a heap of yeah. resources. So we're going to send all of this out um, in, in the email post session. As I said to Nick Brayshaw, you need to register. So everyone needs to register again. If you registered in the past, we're not carrying it over because we want to really tidy up our invoice and make sure, uh, inbox and make sure we're not um, emailing crew who, uh, you know, aren't no longer... At, aren't attending echo um so do register again in the links in the chat is there anything else you wanted to mention about the resources linda sorry to kind of have cut you off there uh, i just yeah just back one slide i think just our oh, two slides so we've got i guess it's a curated list of information that is probably is really helpful to direct your patients to it's on our covid19 positive pathway page under where to access information for patients and it's we've just tried to condense all the information that's coming from both um, federal and state governments around covid and managing at home so i'd encourage you to to pass it on to your patients i think that's it thank you Okay, great. Thanks so much, Linda. Thanks, everyone. Uh, next week, I think we've got a request for more information on rats. Um, I'd like to bring Jeff back to talk about mild COVID as we move back to school. We're probably going to be seeing a lot of it. Um, we'll have actor Hussain talking about back to school from a public health perspective, thinking about it as a workplace, but also a place that kids go to grow and develop. Thanks for listening and register to join us at Project Echo, uh, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network, do send through Cass vignettes and questions um, and look forward to seeing you.